Hey, hi. How are you doing? This is Alex. Welcome back to uh, Stand Up 24 podcast. We decided to take a little bit of a different approach on today's podcast. We're going to dive into something that I feel, or most of us feel, is not getting as much attention sometimes on uh, medical continuing education, EMS into continuing education as it should. That's, in my opinion, is um, high-risk OB issues or any OB issues in the field that we might encounter. Unfortunately, I am missing Andrew and Zane today. We are practicing as much of the social distancing as we can. But I have invited another guest, and she is six feet away from me. <laughs> She's a very well-experienced nurse, especially in this matter. And I'll kind of hand it over to her, let her tell her story a little bit about herself, and uh, hopefully you guys get to know her. Hi, my name is Mandy. So I have been a nurse for 14 years now, which seems like a ridiculously long time. The first nine of those years were in high-risk OB. And then I transferred to the ICU for my last four years in the hospital. And then I've been doing flight for like a year and a half now. So I kind of ate, breathed, and slept OB, <laughs> past tense, <laughs> nice. for the first nine years of my career. Uh, but then interestingly, I found that there was still a lot of OB even in the ICU because these patients get so sick. Uh, I still saw them a lot. And then especially now in flight, we transport these patients. So I can I can pretty confidently say, you know, 14 years of obstetrical experience so uh, in different ways. you might know your shit. Uh, well, hopefully. That's okay. I mean, if I don't know a thing or two by now, there's probably no hope and I should just kill myself. <laughs> well, that's a little drastic, but all right. I, uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, no, I've seen some things. Uh, I've seen a lot of really incredible things. And uh Interestingly, back when I was in OB on the floor, our perinatology group was a lot more involved at that point with patient care than they are now. Now they're kind of more like a consultation process and patients get delivered and managed more by hospitalists. But at the time, our perinatologists were just in the trenches with us and we would have the most phenomenal super casual educational interactions. Dr. Elliot, like our medical director, I can't even tell you the casual, just kind of passing in the lunch break or in the lunchroom, mind-blowing education that that man's given me over the years. And we had four or five different perinatologists who did that. So a lot of the learning that I've experienced was more like informal kind of theory. Well, sometimes that's the one place that you actually get a better footprint in the mm -hmm. back of your head because you remember the interaction and mm -hmm. then the information actually becomes so pertinent to you right. that you pay attention to it and sticks with you Correct. instead of somebody lecturing in front of you uh -huh. and you lose interest and you might have had a question about it, but you don't want to sit in front yep. of 100 people and raise yep. your hand and ask a question and be wrong. Exactly. Well, and then it's more kind of organic learning because inevitably whatever we were learning about had to do with the patient we were managing. And so it's like you're able to immediately take that information and translate it into something useful and meaningful instead of oh yeah, I saw this at a conference six years ago, whatever, let me find my notes. It's like, no, I managed this patient. I saw their ultrasounds. I saw their strips. I watched their vitals trends or whatever it is. So it made it a lot more meaningful. Yeah. So I credit a lot of, of my education to that. Well, hopefully that's what we can do with the podcast today yeah, and kind of hit up a few things. Um, my biggest question to you is you were on the receiving end not working pre-hospital setting and now you work actually in a pre-hospital setting as an emergency medicine provider. What have you seen in the past where maybe some of the biggest pitfalls of EMS crews arriving when you were in the uh, hospital and bringing a patient that was maybe missed or some sure. of the issues? So I think one of the biggest things that um, that happens it, with people who aren't comfortable with obstetric patients is that that initial kind of fear and aversion response kicks in so much that the only thing that you're interested in doing is just getting rid of the patient. Oh, completely. So your focus doesn't become on expertly managing the patient with the same like subtle nuance and science of like intubating someone and managing an airway. Instead, your focus becomes get rid of this patient, get them to an expert, transport them as fast as possible. So there's a lot of opportunity to look deeper into the report, look deeper into the whys, look deeper into understanding how you're managing the patient that doesn't get done because so much focus is just on get rid of. So, you know, I've taken a report from these sending hospitals before as the receiving nurse, and it was like, well, the patient's on this medication. Okay, but why? Well, I don't know. I can't tell you that because yeah. the focus just was 
ah, this patient's too sick, get rid of her, let them figure it out there. Or lapse is an important information in the patient handoff. So one of the things, you know, with mortality and morbidity that we look at consistently in the healthcare arena is that handoff is hugely identified again and again as a potential area for injury with patients. So one of the things that you brought up to me is you're actually doing a presentation, well, we're supposed to. Something happened in the world and everything's canceled. Coronavirus canceled my conference. Never heard of it. Uh, But the presentation actually you were going to do was particularly in this kind of potential missing uh, handoff and transportation and where mortality and morbidity goes up, right? Correct. Correct. Yeah. So I was uh, speaking at a perinatology conference supposed to be at the end of April, which I've fortunately been um, asked to speak at in the past as well, which looked at maternal mortality, which I know we're going to talk a little bit about, but this one was more on transports and okay, now what? So you've been identified as a transport, you know, sender. Now what do you do to really solidify that transport and help it go as well as it can? And report consistently is one of the biggest things. And I know it seems like such an obvious, okay, well, how many ways can you really give report and how can you really hurt patients giving report? But we have to look at the data. We have to look at what data shows us. And one of the studies that I looked at, up to 70% of sentinel events, 70% of patient harm events where patients were hurt or killed or mismanaged in some way can be traced back to a communication error, whether that was nurse-physician communication or nurse-nurse handoff or, you know, EMS nurse handoff or whoever it is. Yeah. So we do have to own a big part of preventable injuries in the way that we hand off. So making sure that you're getting that complete report, making sure that you're getting all the information that you can, making sure that you're transporting those records to the receiving facility. You don't have to be comfortable with understanding the breakdown of G's and P's. You don't have to be comfortable with understanding why knowing how many previous C-sections a patient has impacts the safety of this pregnancy. You don't have to be comfortable with with using that knowledge, but you do have to be comfortable with knowing that that's pertinent knowledge to pass along to the receiving facility. Yes, because for them, it's going to be a lot more pertinent of knowing how bad the progression of this patient potentially could be. And what you have to think about is in in the transport world or in the sending world, that same level of anxiety and fear that you have, that same level of, oh my gosh, this patient's going really quickly, that is still going to be there. Whatever is causing your anxiety, whatever the underlying condition is, worsening preeclampsia, postpartum hemorrhage, whatever it is, that level of chaos is still there at the receiving. But now at the receiving facility, not only do they have to deal with whatever that issue is, but now they have to go back through and they have to actually figure out all the holes in the report that you weren't able to provide for them. So if there is a level of detective work that they have to do to go back through the records on top of managing whatever the acute issue is, you can see how that can create a lapse in care. So really making sure that you're getting that comprehensive report is one of the easiest and also most important things you can do. Easier said than done. Here's the thing. So let's rewind it back a little bit. That's all understandable in communications and without beating it more to death. But how much of it, again, goes to much like our pediatric patients, we deal we deal with a lot with geriatrics, we get complacent. We deal a lot with adult patients, we get complacent, but we know our skills, we do our thing, it is what it is. All of a sudden, low occurrence, high acuity call yeah. kicks in, totally. aka pediatrics. Yep. And uh, in my opinion, maternal is one of the big ones. Yeah. And we don't regularly, we get the, this continuing education, maybe one every right. two years. Yeah. And it's minimal. So like you don't know interest. what you don't know. And now the fear, and like you said, the, hey, I need to just get rid of him. And mm-hmm. if I've got a heartbeat, we're good to go. And yep. you forget a lot of the, everything else that's yep. included where you actually might be making a difference, potential. Totally. And then that lack of understanding, and there goes your mm-hmm. lack of communication because you're so fo- hyper-focused and hyper-vigilant on just one thing. Yeah. Keep him alive. Oxygen, right. IV, O2, you know, totally. moving on. That's it. You forget your other treatment modalities or what could be pertinent for this patient. Yeah. Plus your discomfort. I'll say this one thing. I've been flying for 10 years at this point. Yeah. When I became a flight medic, I was still a firefighter paramedic. So I ended up getting a little bit of high risk OB training, felt a lot more comfortable. All of a sudden when I'm on the fire truck, we were responding to some OB emergencies. My guys would thrust me in, leave me alone. And now you're not comfortable anymore. (laughs) Yeah, I'm comfortable with it. But they're like, you're the most comfortable. You're the most trained. Go with it instead of being like, no, let me inject myself, see what he's asking. Sure. And learn. 
Yeah. Sometimes, you know, that's just the way we have a tendency to go yeah. with it. And I mean, I think that that's, you know, one of the limitations. You're only going to be as good as you want to be, right? So if you want to be afraid of it and you want to stay away from it, you're not going to improve. One thing that I do think is somewhat easy, which we did back 100 years ago when I worked in L&D at Good Sam. And at first we were all super resistant to it, but data actually supports it and shows that it is something that makes a big difference is having a standardized report form. Sure. So if you recognize that like, shoot, I don't even know the questions to ask, that's something that you can keep with you is you just write out just a quick sheet of questions to ask so that it takes you, it's like a memory jogger and it takes you out of that place of just being afraid and super focused and it helps you remember the right questions yeah. to ask. And here's the thing. Medics have a standardized approach. OPP right. or ST or your totally. sample history, of course, goes with it. Yep. But we just have to alter and hopefully we'll kind of clue people in on some things yep. to pay attention is you just change your questions a little bit more totally. pertinent to special things you might need. Right. All right. So the biggest thing that I think that we have to take into consideration in, uh, in being able to treat our patients, we understand, we need to understand pathophysiology, what actually changes Sure. With pregnancy, right? Sure. Because I think there's a lot of things that happen. Uh, I wish I could say that I've always been decent at paying attention to these. In all honesty, without the extra training, I would have or was not up to my standard of what it should have been in understanding that the blood volume changes, sure. the cardiac output yeah. changes, this and that, why it's so important to pay attention to blood pressures. There are changes to literally every single system. All of the systems change yeah. uh, in pregnancy. I mean, <laughs> let's just, you know, we can talk about the hormonal changes straight off the bat. I mean, you're sure. having to ch completely alter your body into a mm -hmm. homeostatic state for another being. Right. With that being said, I mean, we always talk about it blood volume it does increase. And some Correct. people don't take that for, I think they take it for granted. Like, sure. oh, we've got extra blood. So if they're bleeding, it's okay. Yep. What they don't understand is that, what, about 30, 40% increase in blood volume. But the problem with it is yep. it's more of sodium retention yeah. and water in the kidneys. Correct. Uh, you're building plasma up the plasma, plasma increase. Right. You're, you're doing nothing more than when we try to replenish with fresh frozen plasma. It's, it's volume right. spacing. Yeah. So there's a couple different things that happen with blood volume in pregnancy. So it is true. They have about 50% more actually. Oh, so 50, you and wow. I sitting here, me being a non-pregnant woman and you being a man, pregnant uh, woman. around, <laughs> okay. Uh, we have around five liters, right? Uh, yeah. average pregnant woman has around seven. So it's like 40, 40 to 50% increase, but they also have a physiologic anemia. So where my hemoglobin sitting here is 14, the average pregnant woman is 11 to 12, right? right? So you end up with like a dilutional anemia. So there is a slight increase in your uh, hemoglobin, in your red blood cells, but the majority increases in your plasma volume. And that's because pregnant women need a significantly increased number of clotting factors because right. they're going to lose their placenta and bleed. And that's exactly. expected. And it's it's already the body setting itself up in the first six to Correct. eight weeks for Correct. what's going to happen in down nine months, yep. potential C-section, whether it be, I mean, C-section is more us, but natural birth actually occurring a potential It's going to be a bloody thing. Bleed. Yeah, and it the body is, knows that. Exactly. So it's already trying to set itself up for a hemodynamic compensation of potential hemorrhagic shock or exactly. everything else. And the funny part of it is, is like you said, the biggest portion of it is there is no no big increase there's as far as hemoglobin. There's a negligible increase, correct. Right, in but there's no increase in uh, you know hemoglobin carrying capacity for oxygen. So correct. biggest thing. Dilutional anemia. Yep. Keep it in mind, oxygenation, and you're not oxygenating one, you're oxygenating for two, technically. So something to keep in mind if we ever have to go down the airway route or anything else that we have to keep in mind. Big red flags to be aware of. Right. On top of it, physiologic changes. I mean, appearance. We're talking about a big old change. You've got a uterus that's growing every right. week. Right. Eventually, that whole uteral displacement is going to push the diaphragm up. So along with that... Not only is diaphragm being pushed up and your thoracic cavity is smaller, which means that you can't take as deep a breath. Well, so tidal interestingly, volume. so actually tidal volume Doesn't increases. Change. Oh, it does? Yeah. So tight so per breath, tidal volume increases. And I know that that seems somewhat counterintuitive, yeah. but that's because not so much the tidal volume of the inhale needs to be bigger, but the tidal volume of the exhale needs to be bigger because mom is blowing off CO2 for oh, two for people. Oh, for both. Gotcha. Yeah. So what you see in, so there's, absolutely changes to the respiratory system of a pregnant mom. Although you have larger tidal volumes, it's marginally increased. It's like 100 to 150 cc's. Right. So not a huge difference, but you have a massively reduced FRC. 
Functional so, residual capacity. Functional residual so capacity. So off. the way that you need to think of that is that's like our reserve, right? So right. if I go underwater and I hold my breath, I still have lots of oxygen sitting in my lungs and I'm okay. A maternal patient has a massively decreased, up to 40% decrease in her FRC. So even though each breath itself may be slightly increased, her reserve is hugely diminished. And so that's why you end up with these patients who do really, really well, just like our pediatric population. Again, they do really, they really well off. until they don't. Yeah. And so moms have much less reserve from a respiratory standpoint. And if we're going to talk about the respiratory system, we also have to talk about CO2 and ABGs in a maternal patient. So where you or I are totally chill if we're 7.35 to 7.45, a maternal patient needs to run slightly alkalotic. So she needs to be slightly higher on her pH, 7.4 to 7.45. Not badly alkalotic, not Just abnormal. Just on the higher end. But she needs to be on the higher end. And again, that's so she has an increased affinity for that neonate or the fetal CO2 to gotcha. blow it off. So also, a mom She's got needs the to have a drive. low normal CO2. So she needs to be your 35 on her CO2. She's alkalotic. Right. So if you have a mom with a pH of 7.32, you are in a much different position. You are essentially at a 7.27. So you're really acidotic. You're really acidotic. You need to be acidotic. a lot more yes. aggressive as so far as treatment. So you don't have that play on a maternal gotcha. patient to let them, oh, you know, 7.32 in a normal patient I'm transporting, I wouldn't even look twice at that. At a maternal patient, that's a severe sign of compromise because they need to be alkalotic to off-gas that fetal CO2. So it's almost like you can say 7.40 becomes your new 7.35 on the low end. Also, looking at the respiratory status or the respiratory change, when you go to intubate these patients, there are massive differences. So not only are you going to have potential more aggressive indicators for intubation because you know that they have less reserve, you know their ABG derangement is more significant, but then when you actually go to do the airway procedure, you've got differences. Swollen. Right. So swelling, swelling, swelling. Yep. Yeah, so our body doesn't look at any of our mucous membranes with the differential preference. So everything, every mucous membrane becomes swollen and has increased blood flow, which is a protective element for the vagina because it helps those tissues stretch and, you know, moisten during labor. <laughs> but what you also end up with is pregnancy-induced gingivitis. So their gums are inflamed, pregnancy-induced rhinitis. Every pregnant woman always has a runny nose. And then that also extends into the airway. So it's just the overproduction of mucus. It's stimulated one spot, but unfortunately it just does it globally. It stimulates That's universally. Yep. So what that translates to when you're intubating a pregnant person is on average, you should probably go about a half, half size, size smaller, smaller on your tube. Yep. Yeah. The biggest thing is try to minimize the first time attempt as much as possible. Correct. As best, I mean, treat it almost like a that burn patient. That airway is going to be irritable. It's exactly. going to bleed when you touch it. Think of a burn patient. You want the best intubator up front. Yep. As we talked about, oxygenation is not going to be that great. FRC yep. dropping off. Yep. Get the primary intubator in. Get it done. Go and critically, critically important is you have to paralyze these patients wow. because they're gastric. We'll talk about that in a hot second. Right. Because that's a whole different story of history. But um, the other portion as far as respiratory, we got to keep in mind as far as traumatic injuries, especially is because of the shift of the ribcage diaphragm force going from the uterus upwards. Something to consider as far as potentially um, needle decompression, if God forbid needed. Oh, Lord, that would be One awful. One intercostal day, space further up in the mid-axillary. Correct. And the other thing you got to consider from what I was reading was as far as the diaphragm pushing up from the uterus, the shift of the heart as well happens a little yep. bit more left, left and anterior. anteriorly yep. presentation. So yep. another reason to a lot smaller thoracic space to work with if you have to introduce a catheter into it. Take that space up, be a little bit safer. Yeah, exactly. Try to not to destroy anything else that you potentially can. Mm, anything else we're missing? Um, I don't think in respiratory. I mean, we no. can talk about it all day, but just kind of quick pearls. I think I think that covers a lot. Yeah, of it. and I think overall with the cardiac output, the other thing to consider is systemic vascular resistance goes down, right? Correct. Yep. Why is that? Well, so you have to have increased compliance in the uterus, right, for that exchange to happen. So um, systemic vascular resistance being normal or even higher normal as it kind of does initially in pregnancy decreases blood flow to the uterus and thusly the placenta and the baby. So what happens is all those hormones actually lower blood pressure. Yeah. So you expect to see, you know, a systolic of high 90 to low 100 in a term pregnant patient. And that's because she has a nice, relaxed 
vascular system so that there can be that free exchange of blood in the uterus and the placenta. At any time, a pregnant woman has about a liter, 500 cc's to a liter of blood in the uterus. And that's important for us to think about as we start to talk about some of our abnormalities in pregnancy and move toward that with your cardiac issues, your hypertension issues, because that turns into an autotransfusion immediately after delivery. But so that's why you have that drop in SVR so that you can have that really free exchange of blood in, in the reproductive organs so that you can make sure you get blood flow to the baby. So here, here's a random question for you. I was reading up on another article and one thing that they did mention as far as the orthopedic changes that they might actually undergo. Mm -hmm. I mean, one thing is the swelling, the repeating edema, everything else, uh, lower edema. But one thing that I was kind of reading and I want to see if it's true or not is as far as um, calcium changes within the body and becoming a little bit more osteoporotic. Yeah. What Isn't that you, interesting? I know, and also more prone to cavities, which how, happened to me. Really? Yeah. I never had a single cavity as an adult until I got pregnant. Blame it on the kids. They were already eating candy 100%. without knowing it. Jerks. Now, yeah, it's interesting. So a lot of your osteo or your skeletal changes that happen in pregnancy have to do with the hormones, specifically relaxin is one of the hormones. So what relaxin does, as the name implies, it relaxes, right? So that's to allow the pelvis to open in pregnancy. But then what can happen is there can be too much relaxation. So then you start to get into like a lot of your osteopathic issues can actually get pubic synthesis separation. You can get sciatica. You can have dislocation of your pubic um that would make sense. Support well. structures, yeah, which ends up being incredibly painful yeah. for moms. You actually come in with this overriding pubic symphysis joint, which is intolerably painful. Yeah. And those are all considered normal physiologic changes in pregnancy. So as far as like long-term osteopenia or um, osteo changes, osteoporosis changes, you know, not so much of an issue. It's just more at the moment, at the time, for the yep. nine months, this is what you're having to do. And then with. you end up with that lordosis or that huge sway back because you have that displacement of your center of gravity. Lots so of these lower patients, back problems. Oh my gosh. So, and we see that hugely in the flight world because our stretcher is so uncomfortable. I know. It's, it's built for speed, not for comfort, <laughs> not okay? For comfort. It's so Ricky, Ricky Bobby style. Yes. So when you transport this big, gravid woman with this huge uterus putting all this pressure on her back, she's got lordosis. Maybe she's got sciatica. And now she's sitting on an ironing board for an hour long transport. Put a pillow under her knees. Maybe put something soft behind her back because that pain is very real. Oh, yeah, no doubt. And I'm, we'll talk about more positioning because I think there's some other interesting things that we can talk about, yeah. especially positioning. Yeah. Kind of talking about a few myths of the left versus right potential. But it's, it's such an interesting Anyway, I know. It's um, yeah. takes one way, half dozen the other. The right. um, other portion that I wanted to allude to was in regards to back to the whole osteoporosis, osteoarthritis. Yeah. Um, osteoporosis, not osteoarthritis because I'm an idiot. It's all right. It's all right. This, Osteo. this gets edited edit, out, so <laughs> screw that noise. <laughs> To bring it back again, potential MVAs, totally. injuries, yep. multiple fractures, yep. be highly suspect with pregnant Absolutely. patients on top of the potential blood loss, yep. hidden blood loss within the abdomen. As it is, yeah. we always, I always say it in trauma, when you cannot see at a source on a patient of bleeding and they're hypotensive, blame the abdomen. It's Belly. got the most amount of Especially in your stuff that you cannot do anything yep. about and it's not presenting now you've got a second belly literally on top of it. Correct. Absolutely. Fractures are huge in your MVA patient, in your pregnant MVA patient. Or and any trauma. everything is displaced, right? So you have a higher incidence of diaphragmatic injuries. You have a higher incidence of hollow viscous injury or your intestinal issues, your mesenteric artery tears because everything is distended. So for sure, you look at the belly first. And then not even taking into account the massive risk of placental abruption from a deceleration, a rapid deceleration injury. Right. So that would actually be the first place to look and the most suspicious place to look. And unfortunately, something that I saw multiple times as an OB nurse, as you come in, a mom, everything else is fine. And she had a complete abruption and lost the baby because of a deceleration injury. So for sure, bleeding injuries. Coup. Yep. Um, it works more than the brain, right. unfortunately, because yep. everything yep. shifts back and forth. It just pulls away. Exactly. So yeah, that's, I mean, pregnant trauma patients are very that's head to toe. Mess. Everything is, you know, is at risk. Um, because of the pregnancy, because of the physiologic changes, and then also because of that increased risk of bleeding. Yeah, and ultimately, unfortunately, you've got to treat one patient for the survival of both. You cannot 
look at it the other way. Correct. Ultimately, you're making one survive, and that's your priority. Correct. Second one is unfortunately yep. the accompanied passenger at that point. And I've had this uh, difficult couple of times when I was working in the Middle East of having to deal with a couple of these issues. And it's uh, yeah, and it's always I mean it's, it's always one. we can't talk about maternal injury or you know trauma or any of these things and not mention the emotional toll on the team because it's very real when you're in a maternal trauma and you've lost a baby or you've lost a mom, that's a huge thing. And it really does cloud your clinical judgment. And so having familiarity with these issues and recognizing that this is going to be a difficult situation, everyone is going to have an emotional response. It's just like a pediatric code situation. You can't talk about a pediatric code without talking about the emotional factor and how that clouds judgment. And that's the same thing in a pregnant, especially a large pregnant woman. You know, you have someone with a big old 39 week belly and a gunshot wound to the head that creates an entirely different dynamic in that trauma room. It does. And through the trauma room, taking back of an ambulance well, side of the yeah, road. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's makes it's it a, a heated situation. Um, last part of the pathophys, you actually brought up a really good thing. Um, might not be pertinent to some people who work in pre-hospital, but even if you're doing intercity transports on ground, um, yeah. Or in the flight world, I think it's very much valid if you if you could share with us a little bit as far as being able to look at some of the labs and ABGs. Sure. Yeah, so uh, ABGs we, we already kind of talked about. So your maternal ABG ne needs to be slightly alkalotic, so that higher side of 7.4. Um, again, your CO2 needs to be the lower side, so making sure that they're in the 30s. Another important one to look at um, that tells you a lot, especially as you start to get into your preeclampsia discussions, is your creatinine and your kidney function. Because you have such a decreased SVR, you have an increased amount of filtration going through the kidneys. And so maternal creatinine is less than one, period, all the time. It has to be. And then the, um, as far as the pathophysiology or anatomy and physiology, the kidneys actually do enlarge for the duration of pregnancy, don't they? Right. So hydronephrosis or fluid on the kidney is totally normal and seen in almost every single pregnancy. Interesting little trivia fact, more so on the right than left, if it's just a physiologic. I know, very interesting. Just kind of keep that, you know, for your trivial pursuit game night. Um, but yeah, so you do have, because the kidneys are being trans, or not transfused, perfused at such a higher rate than in the non-pregnant patient because of that increased circulating plasma and your increased or your decreased SVR. So the increased perfusion to the kidney, they filter out creatinine much, much faster. So a creatinine of over one is always a, a pathologic finding in a pregnant patient. And that becomes especially important when you start to talk about your meds, like your magnesium, because mag is completely excreted through the kidneys. So if you have a creatinine of 1.2, not working so hot. Yeah, big Mag deal. Mag toxicity a lot easier. Yep. yep. And so for your normal patient, for your normal adult patient, yeah, creatinine of over one always gets your attention. But if your creatinine is 1.4 and you're doing fine, oh, I'm just going to watch it. I'm not going to think much. In a pregnant patient, that's a big red flag. Another really important one that we can look at, especially if we're talking about bleeding, is your fibrinogen level. So fibrinogen is one of those clotting factors that's in the plasma, massively increased in pregnancy, again, because the body knows it's going to bleed. So when that placenta comes off, it's like a scab that comes off. And so the body has to form a, a massive clot there. And rapid too. Correct. So you'll sometimes see fibrinogens, like I've seen fibrinogens of six and 700 in pregnant patients. For us, it's probably around maybe 300 right now. Um, and so if you get a fibrinogen level of less than 300 in a pregnant patient, that's a big red flag. And if you get a fibrinogen level of less than 150, they're in DIC, which is a huge difference than the normal population. And so, you know, if you're transporting a HELP syndrome patient in your preeclamptic or you're transporting a postpartum hemorrhage patient or a placental abruption patient and you see a fibrinogen level of less than 300 or hopefully Start not less than 150, DIC, this is a big deal. Yeah, this is a really big blood deal. Blood replacement potential. Yep, absolutely. And then your hemoglobin, which we already talked about, is typically going to be less than 12 because of that physiologic anemia. And there's a ton of other subtle lab changes. We could have an entire podcast on just lab changes, but those are kind of the biggest four that you're going to look at is your ABGs, your creatinine, your fibrinogen, and your hemoglobin. Good to know. Thank yeah. you. Sure. So let's get into a couple of common issues that we actually might encounter as far as OB emergencies uh, that we might need to treat. One of the really more common ones could be potential preterm labor. So what do we what do we define as preterm labor? We look at overall uh, gestational period is 40 weeks, but anything from 23 weeks or 20 weeks really to 37 weeks is deemed preterm labor. 
How do we know it's preterm labor? Well, look at your exam, talk to your patient, and start figuring it out. So what are some of the subtle signs, symptoms that we'll be looking for in preterm labor? Yeah, so I mean, obviously, the most obvious one is contractions, right? Pain in the stomach that comes and goes. Um, But you can also have much less defined symptoms, cramping, tightness, lower abdominal pain and pressure. I'm always suspicious of anyone who complains of back pain in pregnancy, especially back pain that comes and goes. Um, until it's proven to be that physiologic lordosis or skeletal changes, suspect that that patient is yeah, a preterm labor patient. You've got to always be highly suspect. Be hypervigilant as it is. Be highly suspect of it anyway. Especially this is where I think it comes into play of have you had previous pregnancies? Have you had... History of preterm labor. Exactly. And if you want to get extra bonus points, if you have a history of preterm labor, are you on progesterone therapy in this pregnancy? Because that is one of the only proven statistically significant um, interventions that we can do that actually prevents preterm delivery is progesterone therapy in a singleton pregnancy after a previous preterm delivery. The biggest thing that I wanted to kind of look at is so much they haven't figured out is really to nail down what potentially causes a lot of preterm labors. Yeah, They've just, crazy, right? risk factors. They've seen a lot of risk factors yep. that go along with it. So yep. previous preterm labor, previous preterm, um, preeclampsia, UTI, preeclampsia and preterm delivery definitely correlate. But a lot of that has to do more with us intervening. So when they oh, capture okay. preterm labor statistics, they just look at every delivery less than 37 weeks. And then who delivered before that? And a lot of preeclampsia isn't necessarily cause and effect, although it can be. A lot of it is because we intervene and right, end the pregnancy. Right, gotcha. Okay, so we, we terminated the pregnancy yep. early for them, and that's yep. where the statistic falls but in. UTI is a big one. Gum disease and periodontal disease is a Which big they're one. already susceptible to yep. anyway, as we exactly. talked about. Exactly. Uh, drug use, obviously, especially your stimulant drugs, cocaine right. um, and meth are two really big ones. PCP. Who uses PCP? pregnant ladies apparently i saw several pcp positive patients i do not want to get my ass kicked by by a a pregnant pregnant lady yeah wow that would be embarrassing could you imagine yeah so any of your stimulant drugs um can cause preterm labor and then there are a number of health conditions that can also lead to it so advanced maternal age that's anyone over the tender young very very young age of 35 very very young age 35 is young uh, but technically, if you're over 35, then you're advanced maternal age. Diabetes is also Can we an change it to factor? distinguished maternal Ooh, age? Can we? Or wisened maternal age? Yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. Didn't mean to interrupt. So No, I love it. I agree. I, I agree. But so those are all some of your risk factors. So, you know, you roll up on a scene call. It's a pregnant woman. She's 28 weeks. She tells you she's diabetic and she's 36. Then she's got this lower belly pain. Okay, well, that's a huge, huge number of factors that in the back of my mind, preterm labor is the first thing I'd be thinking of. So we'll talk about treatment. We'll kind of sum up all the treatments together because a lot of them are kind of gathered up. It just changes as far as doses on potential, but there's definitely treatment preterm labor. If it has to come down to the point and you are not able to slow the contractions, what are we looking at viable potential age lowest age in weeks of a fetus. Sure. So when I started, it was 24 weeks and now it has moved down to 23 23. and change. Yeah. So what that means is anything less than 23 weeks, unfortunately, if you deliver its comfort measures. So those babies, you know, this might be an unpleasant truth, but a lot of those babies are born alive. They're born with heartbeats. They make respiratory effort. And unfortunately that comfort care is holding them and swaddling them. Right, doing as much as possible. Yeah, because we cannot develop organs outside of the uterus. And I think that's an important thing to think about is like we can put a breathing tube in and we can put you in an incubator and keep you warm as a little 22-week baby, but you don't have the lungs, you don't have the kidneys, you don't have the brain development to actually survive outside the uterus. And the the other part of the longest part that I remember with is we, when I started, was 25 to 26 weeks was viable. And the biggest is... Right, I know. The biggest thing about it was that they were saying is surfactant development yep. as far as the development of the lungs, being able to ventilate, oxygenate, and move on from there. And yep. there was never as much talk about thinking in the same rationale of Organo you're not developing genesis. organs. So this yeah. is now going to be failure to thrive to a certain extent or... Sure, just that edge of organ development. And I think surfactant is a hugely important thing. We can give surfactant down a breathing tube, which all of us know. But of course, just like anything, it's not as good as the real stuff. Some of us know. Some of us know. Uh, okay, so as we may or may not know, you can give surfactant down a breathing tube, but it's not the same kind of surfactant. And that's a hugely important part also of making sure that you identify if a patient is in preterm labor, because one of the things that we can do to increase surfactant production in the fetus is give mom betamethasone steroid injections. So she gets two shots 
24 hours apart and then 24 hours after that second shot, then that's considered the steroid window, which is such a misnomer because window implies that it opens and closes and it never closes. It's just when it opens. So it really should be like the steroid gateway. Gateway. <laughs> the allowance. The permission. Correct. Slip. Correct. But so the 24, yes, the, the steroid effectiveness. But so that is one of the best things that we can do to protect those tiny little baby lungs is get those steroids in mom prior to delivery. And so a lot of making sure that you identify preterm labor because we can try and stop it. But what we know about years and years of data is that we're not very good at stopping labor when it's really insistent on happening. We can give you all the meds and you're still going to deliver through it anyway, which is why we have so many babies who are born preterm because we can't stop it. But if we can at least identify it and intervene appropriately for the time that we do have, we can save babies. Right. We can alter the statistic. Yep. Ultimately, and we, just can, we can also give MAG for neuroprotection which is a whole separate conversation. Right. We'll talk, we'll talk I don't know how about far mag. we want to go down the science of preterm well, we'll <laughs> care go, We'll go in a little bit, but yeah. the bottom line is... Identifying it is so important. And then again, going back to that transport talk that we kind of started at the beginning, once you identify it, you have to make sure that these moms are transported to appropriate facilities. So a lot of maternal and fetal mortality can be attributed to inappropriate receiving hospitals. So making sure that you're taking these patients to your level three OB centers, which the opposite of trauma, trauma center highest designation is a level, level one, one. The other one's level OB three. Is level three. And the yep. biggest thing is for the NICU support of it. Totally. Or, you know, depending what's going on, because really sick maternal patients, let's say you've got a super sick preeclamptic at 25 weeks. It's actually a maternal condition that's driving it. Right. Um, but that baby is probably going to be delivered early. So they both need it. So making sure that they're going to an appropriate facility. So if you're, you know, I know that people listen to this from everywhere, not just Phoenix, but if you're taking someone from Queen Creek, recognizing that Ironwood and that Gateway and that some of those other facilities that are closer, no. You don't need to go there. You need to go to desert. You so need to go in, to a level in, three. In general terms, when we look at it across the country, there's plenty of places outside of our general metropolitan area. There's a ton of hospitals. A hospital like a Starbucks on every street corner, and they can yep. pick where to choose they and are go. They not all creepy Be people. aware of, through your medic, whether it be through your medical direction or contact with, via patch or any other means to the hospital you tend to go and find out what their capability is if you're right. not aware. Right. And I think an important thing to recognize for maybe someone who hasn't worked in a hospital before is that it does make a big difference which ER or accepting OB triage you present to because once that patient is taken into that facility, now you have inter-facility transport red tape that you have to jump through and you have to go through medical acceptance and EMTALA and it's a much bigger process and sometimes that process can take two, three, four plus hours and in a rip-roaring labor patient, you might not have that much time. Maybe she delivers in that window and now they're at this outlying facility who can't care for a 27-weeker because that's where you delivered that patient to instead of just driving 30 extra minutes to get them to the level three capable facility. So one thing, especially more rural potential communities is keep an eye on what resources you have available at your disposal. Cause maybe this is a patient that is a candidate for flight transport to the nearest appropriate facility and give them the heads up because they might have some extra tools that they can bring along with them. Um, fetal heart monitor strips and everything else monitoring. We'll talk about that later, but get everybody ready and clued in on what's going on. Again, that communication thing. Yeah, and it, it's really, it's so vitally important, especially in the preterm labor patients um, or in the preterm patient with any kind of obstetrical complication. It's so important to recognize that not all hospitals are created equal. And, and this is something that's backed up with data. There's a lot of data that looks at fetal mortality or neonatal mortality. So now instead of talking about moms who die, I talk about babies who die. And it's because they end up at the wrong facility. So this is something that as EMS personnel, we have the power directly to advocate and to change and to make sure that it is not a risk factor for our patients. We can make sure that we take them to the right facility. And we're the first advocates. We're the position yep. extenders technically, and we yep. are the advocates for first line advocates Community for our patients. Based, yes. And we don't have the same red tape of, oh, I have to make sure that I get an accepting physician here. No, you can present there directly from the field. You can advocate for that patient and make sure that they get the level of care that's going to mean Quite honestly, not to be dramatic, it's going to be life or death difference. Yeah, for and not one, but two people. That. Right. Not just one, but two. Right. Um, 
Moving on from there, the other thing I was going to talk about, actually, I was going to dive right into it. You mentioned the preeclampsia and eclampsia. So yep. the biggest thing is that we look at for preeclampsia from perspective in the field, sign of symptoms. So biggest things that are changing along with it is they might have photophobia, issues yep. with visuals. They might, I saw that some of them said even potential blindness could be going mm-hmm. on. Any headaches, kind of visual changes. Yep. Visual changes, headaches will be presenting as well with it. And a biggest thing, one of the bigger things is potential increasing blood pressure as well along with it, starting to present with more hypertension. As we said, in physiologic changes, you expect pregnancies to be on the lower end of the blood pressure. And now we're talking about, some of them said, mild cases of uh, preeclampsia are termed somewhere in the systolic of 140 already. Yep. And then uh, severe is already by 160 on the systolic range. So you start seeing a pregnant female with these blood pressures start asking more questions in regards to okay hypertension history any other issues what's going on and it's important to know sometimes it can be a confounding factor because you can end up with superimposed preeclampsia so what does that mean that means that you are hypertensive all the time you're a chronic hypertensive but now you actually have preeclampsia syndrome along with it right so preeclampsia we always get stuck on the high blood pressure portion of it but that's just one of the things that we identify it. Preeclampsia disease is much, much bigger than just high blood pressure. And that's why we still have so many women who die from preeclampsia. Because if it was just an issue of high blood pressure, well, fine, we give you blood pressure meds and your blood pressure goes down and that's fine. But the sequelae that you end up with from preeclampsia disease is what actually hurts and kills moms. So you end up with strokes and kidney damage and liver damage. And everything else. Right. And the biggest thing is uh, I've seen... Plenty of eclamptic patients there yep. after the fact. And the mm-hmm. biggest thing that actually has come up is they've had such bad strokes, CVAs, yep. they're infarcted. Correct. Brain death yep. beyond it. We'll talk about eclampsia portion because what is the difference between preeclampsia and eclampsia? Preeclampsia is, hey, bad things are happening. Here's the signs and symptoms. Eclampsia, it has gone too bad far. Bad things have already happened. They are seizing. Yep. And that's the biggest thing is we want to try to avoid being in that state or right. getting to that state if we can treat it by any other means possible, whether it be with medication or getting them to the right place, potentially for the right treatment the and everything else. Yep. The biggest thing is once we're in the eclamptic world, the dynamic changes. Yep. We're, we're behind the eight ball, essentially. Patient is seizing. Now we have to stop the seizure while also controlling the blood pressure, potentially. Right. Increasing the seizure threshold so they don't re-seize again to prevent any infarcting death uh, of the brain from the anoxia going on during the seizure. Right. And again, add into the anoxic portion, the not a lot of red blood cells, and add the baby. Right. So right. we've got bigger issues. One suffers, the other one goes right with it. And this right. is exactly what you were saying because as far as preterm labor, the statistic that it falls into is preeclampsia. At some point, you've got actually, if it gets to the eclamptic stage or it gets worse, we cut the baby out. Right. We're done. Right. We're 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 trying to minimize the fetal demise or fetal de- fetal maternal death right. statistic at that well, point. Well, and the only way to cure preeclampsia. So again, just like preterm labor, preeclampsia is one of those things that it's like, oh, we don't we don't know as much as we really should about it. But what we know is that it's a placental abnormality. So we have to get rid of the placenta in order for mom to recover. It's almost it's almost like it's got poison because it's like it's, an allergy. Yeah, it's not yeah. realized what's going on in the right. body anymore and right. forgot. Yep. So we have to get rid of the placenta in order to cure mom. And obviously we can't get rid of the placenta without also delivering baby. The interesting thing about preeclampsia is if you are transporting, you know, someone or if you meet someone who is recently delivered, don't think that, oh, high blood pressure recently delivered. I'm fine because that's actually the most dangerous time is Postpartum, actually, from what I remember reading, actually, do not discount the fact that you've just removed the baby, that there is no chance of mom becoming eclamptic thereafter they still have the hormones yep most common time to seize actually looking at it is the first 24 hours after delivery first six hours but the first 24 hours after delivery are the most dangerous time think about it overall i mean we have so many hormones pumping so many physiologic changes and now we have forcefully cut the baby out or delivered the baby even thereafter these hormones are still that fluid shift exactly and the hormones are still being pumped overall the body body is still a hyper vigilant high alert right and going wait something is missing that's when it's wrong you know it's so funny because when i was in nursing school and i was learning about the stages of labor 
the fourth stage is after the baby's delivered. And right. I remember thinking like, what the heck? This seems so dumb. Like, why is this even a stage? Like the labor is done. So you kind of relax, like baby's out, healthy mom, healthy baby. But that fourth stage is so hugely crucial to the preeclamptic patient or it the is. eclamptic even patient. Even in medic school, when I teach medic school or when I went through medic school many years ago. <laughs> um, Distinguished paramedic <clears throat> age. Right. My beard is starting to go gray. <laughs> no, um, but the one thing that nobody ever actually focused on was, hey, after the fact, there is actually great potential for bad things to still happen. You still have to be hypervigilant and treat the patient or in-home deliveries. Yeah. That's where I was going with it. Yeah, field deliveries. Field deliveries or, or in-home maternal. Plant, yeah. You've midwife, got to think, whatever. Midwife, yeah, exactly. Yep. Which a lot of people have a tendency, Some, well, some people have a tendency to go to more naturopathic approach. Something that, don't be surprised if you get called for a seizure. Right. Tie the two together. Well, this is not a random thing, seizure. Right. And here's the thing is that if anything goes awry in those, that's what they do is they call 911. Yeah. And so the paramedics so or the EMS team is who transports that patient to the right. hospital. So And on top of it, you might be walking into mid-delivery. Who knows seizing, what you're walking into. Seizing patient. Yep. Yeah, a lot, a lot to take in, and I know, but we'll, we'll talk it, about the treatment. It's crazy because if you look at maternal mortality, the two, the two contenders always for first and second place are preeclampsia, eclamptic complications, and postpartum hemorrhage. And in my mind, I just can't understand that because it's like, wait, we should be able to treat massive bleeding. We should be able to treat pregnancy-induced hypertension because I feel like we talk about it all the time, and everybody knows that it's a thing. How are women still dying from it? But they are because of there's a whole that's a whole separate conversation we can have. Um, but there's a, a multitude of reasons why moms still die in this country. But preeclampsia is is very imminently a risk and a threat to moms, and so you have to recognize that it's a real thing. If anything, I feel like it's it's the boogeyman. It's always there. Yep. You've got to be hypervision and scared of it, and you yeah, don't know. You have to be aware of it, and you can't say, oh, her her systolic is only 140. She's fine. That There's, should be a red flag. Yeah, so PBS, or I'm sorry, NPR did a really interesting series called Lost Mothers, Maternal Mortality in the U.S., and it was a, a number of articles, and then some of them were interviews, and they actually looked at patients who died, and moms who died. And kind of like an expose of this very gross underbelly of maternal mortality in the United States and how ours is the worst among developed nations. And our maternal mortality is on par with countries like Mexico, who have much less uh, resources and wealth than we do. And that maternal mortality has been increasing in the United States over the last 25 years. Every other developed nation has seen a decrease except ours. And so it's this really nasty underbelly of medical care in the United States. But the fact of the matter is that American women are three times more likely to die in childbirth than Canadian women and six times more likely to die than Scandinavian women, which is a crazy, uh, very disturbing figure. So, I mean, if you want to be all melodramatic about it, having a, having a, a baby in this country is like taking your life in your own hands as an American woman. And we have to recognize that that's very true. And so anyway, in this NPR expose that they looked at all these different maternal mortality stories, one of the moms who died had systolic pressures that were never over 140. And she still died. So... Yes, it's important to look at systolic blood pressure and use that to identify these patients. But it's also important to recognize that just because your systolic blood pressure is 140 and this woman's is 165, that doesn't mean that they both don't share an inherent risk being right. in that elevated blood pressure range because they do. Just hypervigilance, be aware. Yep. Um, one last one. I am really not that great at understanding this one. It's still something that eludes me, and I'm hoping that you can kind of help me out. Sure. Is uh, the big one is to help yep. with the extra P. Yes. Help syndrome. Extra H -E, L. Uh, extra L. Yes. I'm an idiot. No. H-E-L-P. Yeah. Uh, can you please yeah. enlighten so us a little H -E bit about it? So H-E is hemolysis. The first L. <laughs> Wait, let me think. H-E-L-L-P. So you have liver enzymes and then low platelets. That's what those all stand for. So hemolysis is you get obviously massive destruction of red blood cells. And then your elevated liver enzymes, uh, as the name would imply, you have elevated liver enzymes, right? So your LFT and LST are elevated sometimes into the thousands and thousands. I've seen six, seven, eight, twelve thousand on liver enzymes, which normally those are well below 100. And then low platelets. So I think the lowest platelet count I ever saw in a health patient was six. 
Um, and normally anything below 100 is great cause con for concern. We normally walk around with like two to 300. So what happens in HELP syndrome essentially is you end up with a DIC picture again is the end stage of HELP. But the problem is that you have liver dysfunction also. So not only are you in DIC because you've got this low platelets, but then your liver is not working. So you're not making any more clotting factors because factor, that's yeah. where those all come from. So you've got blood loss from hemolysis. So all of a sudden I have a decreased capacity to carry oxygen and now I'm going to start bleeding because I'm in DIC and then I have even less oxygen carrying capacity because I'm bleeding the hemoglobin that I do have and I don't have any way to fix it in my body. And so as you get on your preeclamptic patient, you know, you can kind of think of preeclampsia and PAH as like a spectrum. So you've got PIH where you just have your increased blood pressures, but all your labs are normal. And then as you start to move down the spectrum, you've got your preeclampsia. So we've got elevated pressures and now some lab derangements. And then and we kind of split. Sign symptoms signs as well, symptoms, finally correct. showing. Yep. And then we kind of split down the road where we either go eclamptic or we go help, typically. You can have both, but typically you choose one or the other as your sequelae of your disease process. And so help is kind of on that same level of seriousness as eclampsia or the seizure, because what you end up with is DIC and widespread bleeding. So you have a mom who has to deliver or just recently delivered, and now she's in DIC and she can't control her bleeding and you have to make her bleed because she's going to deliver. And so these patients bleed out from that as well. So things that you can look for with help, obviously, if you're in the hospital, you can look at labs, um, but in the field, you don't have that capability. So things that you would expect to see in help are petechiae. So those little blotchy red spots all over skin, especially under the blood pressure cuff. That's a great place to look for petechiae. You'll see it in moms. If they've pushed, they're going to have petechiae all up their neck and into their face. Sometimes you'll have ruptured blood vessels in the eyes. Bleeding gums, like spontaneously bleeding gums, spontaneous nosebleeds, and then right upper quadrant pain. All, so these patients are So tender. yeah, liver enzymes, the liver is overworking yep. it. The other part it's of it small is and it's inflamed. literally as, as any DIC patient that we see is they will almost start bleeding out of every possible every orifice. Place. Yep. I've and that's seen, the worst uh, place to be. Like tears, like bloody tears. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's yeah. a scary thing to see when you see that in a patient. And unfortunately, when we're at that point, there's not much we can do in the field. I mean, they need rapid, uh, rapid transfusions, uh, rapid yep. tra rapid Rapid transport and then VAP, they need steroids, they need transfusion, they need platelets, they need cryo, they need all the things that we don't have in the in the pre world. So this is the great intro segue as far as talking a lot, explaining a lot of disease process that are potentially going on with our pregnancy pregnancy patients, as well as talking about path pathophysiologic changes or um, physiologic changes in anatomy overall that we need to be aware of. Uh, in part two, we will jump into some of the statistics that we've been talking about as far as morbidity and mortality and why we need to be better patient advocates and what can we do overall as the patient initial treatment to start the road to improvement. Uh, Mandy will keep sitting in with us and uh, we'll get to it as soon as we get a chance. And thank you guys so much for listening to part one. Mm -hmm.